right, good morning. Thanks, Ben. That was, uh, it's good to, to behold the risen Savior. It's good to behold our God together with you guys this morning. It's my prayer that we're, uh, we're going to look in God's Word today in John chapter 10, and my prayer is that we would continue to fix our eyes and behold Jesus. And in seeing Jesus this morning together as a church family, that we would be shaped and changed uh, into his likeness and, and, and be buoyed by his gospel as we look at John chapter 10. If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I serve here as family pastor. I'm excited to continue our series through uh, the book of John, even as we approach the Christmas season uh, together. Uh, so John chapter 10, I, I encourage you to pull out a copy of scripture and have it in front of you. If you don't have one with you, you can grab one from, from the entryway there in, in a little bookshelf there. Uh, you can grab that, open it together. I'm going to read the whole passage for us in a minute, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Before I do that, I want to tell you a little story about when I was in high school, junior in high school. I uh, ran track, decided to run track for the first, first time. I ran it in middle school, but run for the first time in high school, decided to run track, and uh, ran middle and long distance track. And uh, the big thing that I remember about that whole season of running uh, track and field was uh, my coach. Uh, my coach was... Uh, not very engaged coach. He was very, uh, he took the approach of, of passivity and uh, not hands-on and being withdrawn from, from the team. I, I don't think I ever really uh, saw him really even step foot on the track at all uh, with us. Uh, he, uh, he was a great guy, super nice guy uh, and super friendly, but uh, I don't even know if he knew anything about running or track and field at all. I, I, I don't, he, maybe he was an expert, I just didn't really know him uh, at, at all. He wasn't engaged. And uh, so, uh, uh, so he, he, his kind of practice was he'd come out at the beginning of practice and watch a stretch and then tell us our assignment and then go wander off somewhere and then uh, we'd try to find him at the end of practice and tell him we were done and he'd say, see you tomorrow, and we'd go home. So that's, that was his kind of approach. And, uh, and I didn't really grow as a, a runner, in, uh, uh, obviously. I, I mean, I got more in shape because I was running, but and I mostly just did it for the social thing anyways, to hang out with some friends. But I didn't really grow as a runner. I didn't thrive or flourish as a runner. Contrast that with my senior year. Uh, we, got, we got a new assistant coach who, uh, the same head coach, but this, the assistant coach came in and he was the exact opposite. He was super engaged, hands-on. He knew, he ca- I could tell by the way he talked to us and by the time they didn't vote, he was invested in me in, individually. He knew me. He was always giving me tips. He was, he was a good coach. He would run with us and uh, as he was running, he was preaching sermons at me, telling me how to run better, give me all these, not, not actual sermons, like, like running sermons, <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to improve and get be- become a better runner. He was very invested uh, invested coach, and as a result, I learned to love the skill and the and the and the sport of running, and I and I grew and I flourished. Okay, and that big thing, as I look back on those those uh, two years, two seasons of running track, big lesson I learned was bad leaders, whether they be absent or abusive, bad leaders cause people to suffer. Contrasting principle is good leaders cause people to flourish and thrive, to, to, to become the people that they were designed to be. And uh, we know this to be true in all, all areas of life. You might have a, if you're, if you're a student, uh, you, you know like the difference between a good math teacher, a good English teacher, a good science teacher, whatever, and, and a, bad, a bad one, right? Uh, uh, you know, maybe you, uh, there are those of us in this room who know the feeling of driving to work every day with a knot of anxiety and stress because of the interactions that you're going to have with your supervisor or your boss that day. And you also know, uh, you, also, there are, you might also know the contrasting feeling of 
of knowing, of having a culture in your work and your, your company or your department or wherever where, where the boss gets you, he understands, he's a model of, of working hard and, 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 and he's created a culture, they've created a culture where, you, where people thrive. Like bad leaders cause people to suffer and good leaders cause people to flourish. In, this, in the book of John and really the whole, in all, in all the gospels, that, the, the story of Jesus' life is really a story, a continual story of, of conflict between Bad leaders, the bad Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, and the good shepherd, the, the, the one good leader for, for, of God's people. And so constantly, he's been, we've been seeing him arguing with and going back and forth with and, and confronting the, the leaders of his day. And in John chapter 10, this, kind of, this conflict between good leaders and, and, and uh, the good leader and these bad leaders kind of comes to one of its heads, kind of come, to, come to a, a, a climax. And so, uh, in a minute, we're going to read. I want to pray for us as we, as, before we read this passage. Um, but, uh, uh, but we're going to read all, all, most of John chapter 10, the first 21 verses of John chapter 10, and, and get a glimpse at the good shepherd, the good leader of God's people and, and of us today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, and we'll read. Father, we want to behold you. We want to see you more in your word. We want to see you more uh, even, uh, as we, uh, even in this time that we've set aside to study your word. So, Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, be present? Would you attend to us? And would you uh, cause us, to, uh, in the, the core of who we are, in our hearts, to be shaped and buoyed by our good shepherd? We ask you because only you can do this. Only you can, can, can produce this change in us. So would you work? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've been uh, with us the last couple weeks, just a little context before we, before we read. The last couple weeks, we've sent Jesus down in Jerusalem. He's at, in Jerusalem at a feast, and he's been arguing with the, with, with the leaders. And at one point, it gets, to, it gets so heated between them uh, that they pick up stones to throw, to throw at him to kill him. Uh, and Jesus is, is able to escape from this. He, they don't kill him, but he can't leave Jerusalem without poking the bear one more time. And so as Justin kind of taught through last week, uh, he, as he's walking away from this, this fight with, with, the, with the Pharisees, he heals um, the man born blind, the, the MBB, as, as Justin called him last week. Uh, but the problem is that he does this on a Sabbath, okay? He, he does it on a Sabbath. And for the rest of chapter 9, of John chapter 9, there's a trial, there's a debate about this, because the Jewish leaders hate that Jesus violated their, their Sabbath laws. Uh, but there's a hypocrisy that Jesus wants to expose here. The men that are supposed to be the enlightened shepherds of God's flock, who lead and care for his people with wisdom and compassion and insight, are actually proving themselves to be blind, weak, and cruel. The, men, the people who are supposed to, like, when, when they see one of the, the, a member of their community receive his sight back, though he had been blind from birth, they should be excited and jumping up and down so happy that this happened to someone in their town. And instead, they, all, all that they can think about is that this could challenge their position of authority, and, their, their, and, they, and he's broken one of, their, one of the laws that, they, what, that, they've, uh, that they've invented. And it's into this context that Jesus speaks these words to the crowds, uh, at the end of chapter 9, he's talking to, specifically to the man born blind. He's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And then the, the Jewish leaders, they overhear. They overhear him talking. Uh, and so Jesus then turns to address 
the man born blind, and then the Jewish leader, the bad leaders of, of his day. So this is what he, and this is what he says to them, starting in verse 1 of John chapter 10. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, verse 7, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf snatches Uh, then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right or the authority to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We'll pause there for now. We'll come come to a few of the verses later. But I want us to first see uh, the problem here that Jesus is addressing in this kind of long address to the the man born blind and then to the leaders who are listening in. And and the problem that he wants his people to recognize and grapple with is life under the false shepherds. Life under... False shepherds. He uses a lot of different images, as we were reading. You may have picked up. He, he mixes his metaphors a little bit, but uh, uh, that's okay. He's Jesus. Uh, and he, he uses a lot of different images and figures of speech to describe the leaders of his day. First, he calls them thieves and robbers. And he says you can identify a thief and a robber because they are leaders who try to take power through illegitimate means. So uh, whereas the, the, a, a shepherd just goes right in the gate, the thieves and the robbers have to jump over the walls of the sheep pen, just like a, a real thief and a, uh, and a robber in, in our day. Uh, they try to sneak over the wall. And we know this is what, exactly what this is like in our day. We have political leaders who try to, take, who try to usurp a power, authority, take, taking, uh, taking power through illegitimate means. Even just last week, anybody following the, the controversial news, or two weeks ago, we have a, a, a United States... Uh, congressman expelled from the House of, of Representatives for committing fraud, for lying about his camp, campaign finances, and lying about his own identity. We, have, we know what it's like to have thieves and robbers who try to take power 
through illegitimate means. We see this not only in politics, but also uh, in the church as well. But then secondly, he uses a second metaphor to describe the, 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 the Pharisees. He calls, them, um, he calls them hired hands. Hired hands in verse 12 and 13. He says, The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then sna- snatches and scatters them because the hired hand doesn't care about the sheep. So a hired hand is a leader who lacks the integrity and lacks the courage to lead sacrificially. They lack the integrity and courage to lead sacrificially. And these are the Pharisees. The Pharisees who cared more about keeping the status quo, keeping their power, enforcing their man-made rules than seeing a man born blind, as, as joyful as that should have been for them, because of what it might have cost them. Now, we hear these rebukes. And we might think, yeah, Jesus, get them, right? Uh, put these selfish leaders in their place. But actually, the Pharisees listening to these words would have felt the sting of his criticism and his rebuke even more sharply than we realize. Because describing Israel's leaders in this way it was not a new thing. Jesus is actually here echoing the words of Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 was written almost 600 years prior to Jesus speaking these words. And this is what Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel to say, at the lowest point in Israel's history, when they're being hauled off into exile by, by, by the Babylonians, Ezekiel says this, Son of man, or God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, you wear the wool, you butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. Then skipping down to verse 10, he says, This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. All right, so these are the leaders that Jesus is comparing, uh, comparing the leaders of his day to. But more than that, remember, it's, he's talking to the leaders. He's also talking to the man born blind and everybody else who's seen this miracle happen. So he's looking on the crowds, the everyday people of God who are hearing these rebukes. And in another place, it says that Jesus looks on them with compassion as though they were sheep without a shepherd. It's a staple that throughout history, God's people suffer the greatest under absent and selfish leaders. This is how it happens. So I wonder about us in this room. Where have you grown content in your life to be led by thieves and robbers and hired hands? And now we, we say that, and we, you know, it might, it might be hard for us in kind of an individualistic society. Like, we don't think of anybody as being our shepherd or our authority. Like, we, our political leaders are called representatives, right? We don't have, you know, we don't have leaders or, like, we are kings. We have Representative, So it's hard for us to think of ourselves as under somebody else's leadership. Uh, and maybe a better analogy is to, to recognize that we have, on our, the temptation in our lives is instead to place ourselves as the leaders and shepherds and governors and kings of our own life and our own destiny. And Jesus' question to us, who have uh, lived our whole lives wanting ourselves to be king, wanting ourselves to, make, to be the boss and the decision makers in our lives is, how is it working out for you? 
Like this is the result of someone who cares only about their happiness. The, 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 uh, this is a result of, 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 of a flesh that is dead set on pursuing happiness. The result is not life, but death. The result is not, 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 not flourishing, but suffering. So how's it working out for you? That's the, first, that's the problem Jesus addresses, is life under false, shep, uh, under false shepherds. But then in contrast to this, Jesus puts himself forward in this sermon as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Did you, did you see Jesus call himself that? And good is such a simple word for us. We're going to spend the, the second half of our time looking at what he means by the good shepherd. It's such a simple word uh, for us. Uh, but that's the way John kind of writes and Jesus, John kind of records this simple language of Jesus. It's using very simple words to, to communicate depth and nuance and, 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 and profound meaning. And there's two aspects of this goodness that Jesus unpacks as he's talking to the man born blind and to the, to the Pharisees. The first is the goodness of his love, the goodness of his love, and then secondly, the goodness of his authority, the goodness of his love and, and, the, and of his authority. And in both of these traits, the shepherd is, is unique. The good shepherd, Jesus, is unique. He's beautiful. Oftentimes that word uh, good in the, in the New Testament is translated as beautiful or pleasing, sound and whole, unique. So in a sea of pretenders, Jesus is exceptional, is what he's saying with this word. So we're going to see his exceptional love and then his exceptional authority. There's a couple aspects of his love that he brings out. Firstly, intimacy. His intimacy, verse 3 through 5. Uh, look at him with me. The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. Skipping down to verse 14 also, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. An ancient Middle Eastern shepherd like, would have been intensely familiar and intricately aware of all the uniquenesses and the nuances of his flock. Like when I drive by I, you know, I know nothing about farming or you know, agriculture or anything. When I drive by a field in the lower 48 or something and just see, like, cow, like it's just cows or just sheep out there, right? I have, like, it's just a blur of, of animals and stinkiness. Like, that's all I see. A shepherd, a shepherd knows all the blemishes, all the, the cadences of the way they're sheep. He knows their, he has names for them. He knows, the, like, the one with the floppy ear and the one with the torn out. He knows the one that, that always eats alone by himself. He knows all the intricacies of his flock. It's like my, my son, like, we go to the beach, favorite activity, Micah, collecting rocks and stuff, and then he'll bring me a pile of rocks. And he's like, look at my rocks! I'm like, it's just a pile of rocks, right? But then he's pulling out each one, and it's like, look at the one, the way this is shaped, and look at the, look at this, the color of this one. Isn't it different than this one? Like, no, it's not different. It's the same. They're all rocks. But, but to him, like, they're each unique and Like, he knows them. He, he would name his rocks if we, you know, if we let him alone long enough to do that, right? Uh, he, he loves, uh, whereas to me, they're just a pile of rocks. This is the way that Jesus views his sheep. And do you hear the words that Jesus is talking about you in this passage? As the Father knows the Son. Did you see that? And the Son knows the Father, so the Son knows you. You are known and seen and called with an almost mystical, almost divine intimacy. He knows you in a supernaturally deep way. 
way. I love these words from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's a pastor in London in the, in the 1800s. They're, they're poetic. Uh, uh, you can follow along with me here. I'll read the whole thing. He says, The Redeemer says, I know them. I know them. How his eyes flash with kindness. How their cheeks burn with gratitude as he says, I know them. He does know us. We are old acquaintances of his. And he has known us from before the foundation of the world. There are riches of grace in this. Our Savior knows us. Our Shepherd knows us. Beloved, he knows your person and all about you. You with that sick body, that aching head. He knows you and he knows your sin with all its sensitiveness. That timidity, that anxiety, that constitutional depression. He knows it all. He knows your corruptions. He will help you overcome them. He will deal with you in providence and in grace so that they shall be rooted up. He knows your temptations. Oh, he knows it. He knows it. He can help you better than any other can. Each one of us in this room have been created by God to be known like this. Yet how many of us know the heartache of being unknown, unheard, and unseen? And when we feel unknown like this, we can carry so much burden on our own. You may feel this this morning trapped in loneliness. You may feel that if someone knew the whole you, they couldn't possibly love you like this. You may feel unknown even by your own spouse. But Jesus, the good shepherd, who knows you, who knows you fully, and he delights to know you fully. This is what our shepherd offers us. But not only... Intimacy, also reliable, life-giving defense. Reliable, life-giving defense. Look at, uh, we'll look at mostly verse 10 and 11 here, uh, but he spends a lot of time talking about this. Uh, in contrast to the hired hands who lack integrity and flee at the first sign of danger, Jesus can be trusted. Uh, he lays down his life for the sheep, verse 11. And then when his, uh, when his sheep need him most... He puts himself in between them and the danger. Uh, but not only that, look at, look at verse 10. The thieves and the robbers cannot be trusted. They come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes so that his sheep may have life and abundance, or life to its fullest capacity. This is what David prays in, in, in Psalm 23. Our good shepherd leads us beside still waters into green, lush pastures. He prepares a banquet for us. He causes our cups to overflow, and under his care and mercy and or under his care, mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our lives. Now, if you're like me, it's really hard to believe these promises sometimes. Right? How can following Jesus lead to life in its fullest capacity when following Jesus seems so limiting? When following Jesus seems, means saying no to the way I want to use my free time. It means saying no to my sexual desire. It means saying no to all the things I want to say yes to. How can he promise me and you abundant life? But here's what I found. and what I've, This is the universal experience of every single one of Jesus' sheep who have ever taken our good shepherd at his word and followed his voice. As, as we say no to our own desire, like a sheep saying no to wandering off and doing his own thing. As we say no to our own desires, as I've limited myself on the narrow path that the shepherd leads us through, every single time, without fail, this paradox proves true. That my greatest, fullest life comes only through death. 
That, that life as it was meant to be comes only through laying aside my life. So maybe there's an area of your life that you know Jesus is calling you to say no to. Maybe there's an area of life where you're clinging to the authority of a king of, of a shep- that, 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 that the shepherd should have. And when you think about letting this go, all you can think about is what, what it's going to cost you, right? The pain, the loss of a relationship, maybe the loss of some comfort or pleasure. Let me invite you, simply just take Jesus at his word. He is reliable. He only has your best in view. And the life he offers is exceptional. It's abundant. It's full. Nothing else offers you what he, ca- what he can. Okay, so... Intimacy, reliable, self-giving defense, but then finally, Jesus, the shepherd has an exceptional mission. The, Jesus, the shepherd has an exceptional mission. Look at verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now this is kind of cryptic here a little bit. What could Jesus be referring to? But I think it's clear that Jesus is... <clears throat> That Jesus is saying that his shepherding love, the principle is his shepherding love is expansive. It's not, in, in this context, it's not limited to the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, but, uh, or the sheepfold that, is, that are, is the Jews. But in laying down his life and rising from the dead, he's, he's, he's going to, what he says in, the next, in a couple chapters, John 12, he's going to draw all kinds of people, all men to himself, both Jew and Gentile, to himself. That is God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Uh, that through the Hebrews, the world will be blessed, comes true in Jesus. And then, as Paul in Romans 11 says, the Gentiles are going to be grafted in so that there's one vine, one shepherd, one flock. And so here's the question. If the love and intimacy and sacrifice and protection and abundant life that the good shepherd offers, if all of that is expansive and inclusive, then who are we inviting into this? If the good news of the gospel is really good, if it's not just like theoretically good or in principle good, if the good shepherd is a better master than we are for ourselves, if the, if the good shepherd is a better master than the master that your neighbor, that your family members, that your friends who don't know Jesus is, is than any other master they could put themselves under, if all of that's true, then who in your life needs to get in on what the good shepherd is offering? And I wonder if one of the reasons that we're hesitant to point to join Jesus on his expansive mission is because the good news of the gospel isn't really that good to us. Now, that sounds like heresy here, but what I'm saying is this. Maybe at the end of the day, you and I's conception of the gospel is not that it's good and life-giving, but that at the end of the day, it's just, it feels like just another burden. We would never articulate this, we would never admit this to ourselves, but we can live like this. It's so easy for you and I, even years after coming to Christianity, if we're really honest with ourselves, we could confess that our hearts still kind of groan, our souls still kind of ache under the weight of moralism. That in the back of our minds, we know we're not walking in abundant, satisfying, and intimate life. We're still scraping and scratching to perform deep to protect ourselves by covering up our own shame, <clears throat> scrambling to portray an image to the world, to ourselves and to God that we measure up, that we have it all together. But friend, like, that is not 
the gospel or, fur, or in, it couldn't be further from the gospel. In the gospel, the good shepherd has already done it all for us. And so my invitation would be for you, if you've always struggled with, like, with motivation to join Jesus and, and to speak about Jesus on his mission, to, uh, on mission, to, to share the, go- the goodness of the gospel with your friends and neighbors, is take stock, is the gospel really good to me? Have I taken the gospel for all its goodness and, and, and felt it applied to my heart? Or am I still living under the burden of some false gospel-like thing like moralism? Only when Jesus' exceptional grace grips us in this way will we ever be able to join Jesus on his mission. Okay, so that's his exceptional love, but then he kind of puts a bow on this with the last couple couple verses, and we see his exceptional authority. Uh, he puts a bow on this, this good, good shepherd metaphor. To, to, to his, his, his exceptional love is enhanced and magnified by his exceptional authority. Two things about his authority. Firstly, uh, Jesus is the authoritative substitute. Jesus is the authoritative substitute. So look at verse 17. It says, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right or the authority to to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So Jesus' death here would not be the death of a helpless victim. It would not be taken from him, but willingly given, like a soldier who steps willingly into combat to protect a child, or like the the secret service agent who jumps willingly in front of a bullet. Uh, uh, Jesus took the death that was intended for you and for me. And that is why, as we head into Christmas, that's why the Christmas story is so mysteriously glorious. Because his entire Jesus' life, from his conception to his death, his entire human life as the the incarnation of the God-man, was an intentional plodding toward death. Toward death as you and I's substitute. He did not on a whim, die for you, or on a whim, feel moved to, to make sp- some spontaneous random act of kindness. Like, Jesus was intentional and plotted toward death for you. But unlike anyone else, he has the right or the authority to take his life up again. So he is our substitute, not only in life, but in death. So that's where the kind of the metaphor, like in my mind, it kind of broke down for me. Like, if a shepherd dies for his sheep, like fights a wolf and dies, like, What's going to happen? The wolf just goes, is going to go on and kill the sheep, right? Like, that's what, that's what happens if a shepherd actually lays that. No shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's kind of illogical. Unless you have the power to take your life back up again. And in taking his life back up again, uh, he secures and saves the life of his sheep. And so, that's, so we see a second aspect of his authority. Jesus authoritatively secures his own. So skip down to verse 27. We didn't read it earlier. 27 through 30. This is, he's still on the same, the good shepherd theme, but he's at a slightly different venue. So he says this. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When my boys are kind of squirrely in this, in this, trying to listen to a sermon or in the worship service, I'll play this game with them. I'll like hold a small pebble or a toy or something in my hand, 
and, and they have to guess which hand the pebble or the toy is, is in, and then once they figure out which hand it's in, they have to try to get it out of my hand. So, uh, uh, so they'll one by one try to like pry my fingers back, and it normally can distract them for like two minutes of me doing this. And then, but eventually, like I let them win. If I don't let them win, then they don't want to play the game. So, uh, so, but it, so eventually they get the thing, the toy or the, the, the marble or whatever it is out of my hand. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, um, but we all know, like, in a contest against a three-year-old, I mean, I'm not that strong, but in a contest against a three-year-old, if I was actually trying, like, there's no way a three-year-old's getting that, that marble out of my hand, right? Uh, uh, and so, um, and, a, and that is the way, that is the image uh, that Jesus is describing here, that, that all the pretenders, all the fakes, all, the, all of our worst enemies, sin, Satan, Hell itself is arrayed against us, but they are like toddlers trying to take a marble from a grown man. Like it's an impossible task. That is the security with which Jesus holds his own people. And this is important because, this is, again, we can often get a slightly skewed version of the gospel in our heads. It's gospel-ish. It's close to the gospel, but not quite. And that is, and I've, I've, told, I've, I've said this version of the gospel, I've described the gospel in this way to many people, and it's, uh, but it's slightly off. It's, Jesus died and rose again to make it possible for us to have a right relationship with God. But that is, Jesus died and rose again to make it possible for us to have a right relationship with God. And that is true to an extent, uh, but that is actually not the gospel. Jesus didn't die to make something possible. He didn't die to, bring, to make something potential. Jesus' death and resurrection definitively secured your status before the Father for all eternity. There is no question mark. There is no... Nothing left unanswered. There's nothing left to do. The good shepherd has done it all for you. And this is super important because I, I need a gospel like this. I need a gospel without any question marks. I need a gospel without any, like, but there's still something, like, without any doubt or hesitation or gray area. I need a black and white gospel that says nothing. Nothing can come to the, into, into the table uh, onto the table. Nothing can enter my world. No, no amount of doubt, no amount of, of, of failure, no amount of, 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 of a temptation or pro- protesting by the enemy could ever call into question the firmness with which Jesus grips you as his child and as his sheep. This is the kind of gospel you and I need because this is the kind of world we live in. And so that's why, we're, we're, uh, that's why Paul writes this in Romans, in Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, but that, you know, what category is that? Everything. Any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple landing points for us as we, as we leave this passage and head into the Christmas season for us. Firstly, Christmas can be a time that's marked by a heavy time for, for some of us. Marked by grief, marked by doubting, marked by, by, uh, by, by loneliness. 
There are brothers and sisters in this room who know Christmas is going to be a hard time. It's going to be marked by pain. And the darkness of, of winter doesn't help at all. And I'm, but I'm so struck by this little fact we didn't, uh, that John just kind of glosses over. We didn't really mention it here. But Jesus makes this promise of authoritative security and protection and love and intimacy. Uh, in verse 22, it says that Jesus is at a new, new feast. He's at a feast of dedication, and it was winter, it says. Feast of dedication happens early December every year in the, Jew, in the Jewish calendar, so right about this time. So Jesus is speaking these words, and to the darkness and the doubt and the loneliness of the, of the coldest, darken, darkest, most barren time of the year. So in the doubt and in the mourning and in, in the loneliness that we may experience during the holidays, like let your heart be buoyed by the care and the intimacy and the eternal defense of the shepherd. But then secondly, like, we, we will celebrate Christmas. Like, Christmas is a joyful, uh, a joyful celebration. I've been accused of kind of being uh, down, uh, like a downer on the joy of Christmas. I'm not. I love, I love Christmas. I love the joy of Christmas. I have a heart. Uh, and and, and the, the, good, the good shepherd has come. Like, the good shepherd has entered our darkness. And this is exceptional news. So let us rejoice. Let's not settle for a lesser joy. Let us rejoice in what the good shepherd has done to definitively secure a status before the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. And we say that as such a trite four-letter word, good. But Father, you are good. And we so often settle for less than good things. And we, our, our, our souls and our, our, our lives ache and groan under less than good, under the bad leaders that we choose for ourselves. And so, Father, we confess and repent where we have set up for ourselves, even our own selves, as king over our lives, and where that has led to anxiety, where that has led to pain, where that has led to the pain uh, in, in other people's lives. Uh, we confess all that, and we repent of it. But, Father, we also turn to you as the good shepherd, as the one who leads through the darkest, deepest valley, we turn to you and cling for life, rejoicing and uh, rejoicing in and celebrating in what you're, you're coming to lay down your life for us has procured. So Father, would we know your intimacy? Would we know your affection? Would we know your authority and love and defense in new and fresh ways, in ways that we have never known them before? going forward. We lift this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.